Welcome back to the Axe Murder Diaries. I'm your host, Amanda, and today on episode 11, we are not talking about an axe murder, but we will be traveling back in time to Victorian England. This Valentine's Day episode was inspired by the photograph I now hold in my hand of a beautiful Victorian woman. On the back, in cursive and underlined, this young lady was murdered by her sweetheart. It is quite literally a dark and stormy night, so I'm bundling, grab some hot tea. We're heading over to Victorian England for the murder of Elizabeth Bessie Caroline Goodwin. Friday, August 21st, 1863. So for some background, Elizabeth, or Bessie Goodwin, lived in Derbyshire, England with her grandfather, Captain Francis Green Goodwin, a magistrate, for the last four to five years. She moved into his home, Wigwell Grange, to help care for him as he aged, she was his favorite grandchild. To quote the newspaper, she was a fine, tall lady and was generally esteemed as accomplished, courteous, and especially kind to the poor. Bessie met a man named George Victor Townley while visiting her uncle. George Townley came from a respectable family, but he did not have a job. Now that is a common theme with some of these men here. She had been wooed by George Townley for the last four years, and they were engaged, quote, with a short interval of six months. Her friends didn't approve of the engagement since George did not have the means to support a wife. Now I wonder if there was an additional reason. On August 14th, Bessie wrote George to break off the engagement. Apparently, George gave all but one of those letters of their exchanges to her grandfather, who destroyed them without reading them. The Derby Mercury stated, we believe the unfortunate lady had shown a preference for another suitor and had written to Townley to terminate their engagement. Letters from George Townley to Bessie Goodwin. My dearest Bessie, dearest you will always be to me. To say that I am not terribly cut up would be a lie, but at any rate, you know I am not the man to stand in your way. I answer nothing to your last letter, except that I wish to hear from your own lips what your wishes are, and I will accede to them. You know me too well to suppose that I should give way to any unnecessary nonsense or sentimentalism. I have had a singular run of good and bad luck lately. It suffers to say that I have an offer to leave England. Before I go, I wish to see you once again. And for the last time, though God knows what misery it gives me to say so, you will admit that my desire to see you is but natural. Say in your next where you will meet me, I will come by the first or second train from Derby on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, whichever suits you, of course, without anyone knowing. The sooner it is all settled, the better for both parties. Ever dearest, Bessie, your affectionate, will you write by return? George. Wednesday, two days before the murder. My dear Bessie, I will only say here that I will arrive by the train you mention, 11.37 a.m. Friday morning, and that I hope, dear Bessie, you will not bother yourself unnecessarily about all this as far as I am concerned. For my own peace of mind, I wish to see you, which I hope you won't think selfish. Do rest. I only repeat what I have already said. I have but to hear from you what your wishes are, and they shall be complied with, and that I have sufficient this is not legible for me to read. Not to make a bother about what cannot be helped. You can write to the Midland Hotel Derby, where I shall stay tomorrow night, or leave a note at the inn at 
what stand well bridge for me. Don't let me be the cause of any row between you and your GP. If you like to call at the inn, I will not stir out till you come. But I leave all this to your judgment, ever yours affectionately, G.V.T. George Victor Townley. The following is the only surviving letter from Bessie Goodwin to George Victor Townley. My dear George, I write this in the greatest haste to tell you not to come on any account. I leave here today and cannot tell when I shall or can be back again. I do not wish to see you if it can possibly be avoided, and indeed there will be no chance now, so we better end this state of suspense at once and say goodbye without seeing each other. I feel sure I could not stand the meeting. If you write once more within the next three days, I can get it, but not later than that time without its being seen, for my letters are strictly watched and even opened. Yours truly, Bessie. George's mother received the letter and telegraphed her son right away. Letter from B, Bessie. Come at once. We'll meet you at the station. We'll wait. Immediate. So George Townley's mother testified that she read some of the letters that were burnt by Captain Goodwin. On August 12th, Bessie wrote to George to tell him she had met a clergyman who was, quote, the most delightful man she had ever seen in her life. Mrs. Townley also noted how the letter ended with, yours affectionately, instead of the usual, your own darling. On August 15th, George received another letter from Bessie. It stated that she had a great deal to say to him, and it better be said at once. It stated, I want you to release me, that I may have it to say I am not free. Don't take this too hardly in pity for me. I shall not marry if I can help it. It was signed. Yours. Sincerely. So the engagement was broken off, and Bessie unfortunately agreed to see him one last time. Per the Courier in Argus, August 31st, 1863. It appears that Townley arrived at the Midland Hotel, Derby, on Thursday evening, slept there, and proceeded by rail to Watstanwell on Friday morning. He called at the Bull's Head Inn there, opened his carpet bag, took out a morphia pill, swallowed it, had a glass of brandy, left his bag, and went away. He then proceeded to Worksworth, and at the hotel there had more brandy and wrote two letters in the commercial room. After seeing the Reverend Mr. Harris, he had an interview with the unfortunate girl. When she consented to give him a final meeting in the evening, she did so, and they walked together until they got to a gate by the roadside, against which they leaned, and Townley then pulled out of his pocket a springback clasp knife and commenced whittling it, the top of the gate. He begged of Miss Goodwin to go away with him, but she refused, and he then put his arm round her neck and thrust the knife into her throat. In turning the knife round, the end of the blade broke and remained in the wound. He declares that he had no intention of committing the dreadful act one minute before its execution, and that in a moment after he had accomplished it, he was very sorry for what he had done. He had three knives in his pocket. The murderer was not in business himself, but acted as a confidential clerk to his father, who was in an extensive way of business. Mr. Moran, at the prisoner's request, wrote to his parents informing them of what had taken place, and his father being at Harrogate for the benefit of his health, the letter was opened by his mother. Townley says that if a million of money had been offered to him to break off his engagement with Miss Goodwin, he would not have accepted it, as he loved her to distraction. 
He said that for the last three weeks he had been unsettled, owing to receiving a letter from Miss Goodwin breaking off the match. He said that if Miss Mr. Moran could save Captain Goodwin's or his own family a single pang, he wished, to him, wished him to do so, and for himself he could only count the moments and anxiously wait for that time when his life would be forfeited and he should be re reunited with his victim in a better world. Townley had recently contemplated leaving England, as he wrote to Miss Goodwin a few days ago, a letter in which he says, It never rains, but it pours. I have had a strange run of ill luck lately. He then goes on to say that he regards Miss Goodwin's conduct in discharging him as the crowning act in this catalogue of misfortunes. He alluded to the wish expressed by his friends that he should go abroad, but desired to see her first. Miss Goodwin has four or five years resided with her grandfather, with whom she was an, an especial favorite. He had no other female relatives with him. When she met Townley for the last time, she wore a hat and a shawl, and her dress was a very thin, fawn-colored one. It should be stated that after Townley had assisted in carrying the dead body of his victim to the hall, he proceeded with Captain Goodwin into the drawing room, where he had tea with the captain, and had also some brandy and water given to him. The captain, being very old and infirm, in the absence of the police, adopted this course for his own personal security and that of his domestics. Townley left four sovereigns on the drawing room table, which Captain Goodwin handed to the police. Now, imagine having the audacity to murder a woman and then allow yourself to have tea at her grandfather's house and be fed brandy and water. Um, I find that extremely appalling, but you can have your own opinion there. So let's see what Captain Goodwin had to say about what happened. So it does note here that he was 84 years old and appeared to be somewhat infirm, but spoke with a strong, clear voice. So he stated what happened, and then he also said what, that is Luna, say hello to my co-host. She's feeling much better, by the way. Um, she had a bit of an ear infection. But anyway, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so if, you're, if your cats are doing like Pikachu ears, um, get them seen by the vet, the vet because that, that's ear drooping and that could be from an ear infection, which she did have. Um, okay, so this is what Captain Goodwin said that the prisoner George said. Um, so George did end up being arrested, but this is what he told him. I told her I would kill her. She knew my temper. He also said, I had the means two months ago, and I have the means at the present time. He asked if I would take charge of some things, some of his things. I observed he had money in his hand. I declined to take anything. He then produced two packets of letters. He gave them to me and said, Will you take care of these? You may read them, burn them, or do what you like with them. I don't wish these to be brought into court. I kept them for a few days and then threw them all into the fire. Goodness. I did not read a line of them, but I believe them to have been my granddaughter's letters. The prisoner was staying at my house for a few days at Christmas time. I did not see much, hardly anything, of him. On the Friday evening, he behaved with the greatest indifference. I thought I saw a little excitement about him just before he offered me the things. He had been so perfectly indifferent. 
before that, I noticed the change. Um, wow. Next for the testimony of Reverend Herbert Harris. I kept the grammar school at Worksworth, about a mile and a half from Wigwell Grange. The prisoner came to my house on the 21st of August at half past one and said, I have called on you as a friend of Miss Goodwin. I suppose you know there is an engagement between us, I said. I understood there was an engagement, but that it had been broken off. He said, she has written to me to break off the engagement and declines to see me. I want to know how matters stand. I said, anything I know is in confidence and therefore I cannot satisfy you. He said, I will find it out somehow or other. He then asked, who was the clergyman who had been staying at Wigwell? I said, there had been one there, but I declined to give his name. I have been told that there was an engagement between Miss Goodwin and this clergyman who was staying there three weeks or a month ago. He then asked if Miss Goodwin was at Wigwell, Wigwell and if I thought any coercion had been used towards her. I said she was at Wigwell, but no coercion had been used towards her that I was aware of. He said, sooner or later, I must see her. I have written to release her from the engagement, but I must hear from herself that she gives it up. She is of age and must please herself. I know I am not a good match and have no wish to stand in her way. I then told him I must leave him and that was my school hour, two o'clock. But if he would call at half past four, I would see him again. He then left and came again at half past four. I told him his best course was to write a note to Miss Goodwin and send it by post, requesting her to see him in the morning. He said he had already written in without effect. I said, if you were to call at the house, perhaps Miss Goodwin would see you. He said he would do so and get it off his mind. He left saying he would call again, but did not do so. His manner was that of an ordinary man, perfectly calm and collected. There was nothing to attract my attention. So clearly after that meeting, that is when he went to meet up with Bessie to kill her. Now for another piece of this puzzle, the testimony of Elizabeth Margaret Poyser, housemaid at Wigwell Hall said the prisoner came to the hall on friday evening the 21st of august at 20 minutes to six and asked for miss goodwin i showed him in and miss goodwin met him at the drawing room door and they went into the garden half an hour later i went into the garden and found them sitting on a seat a short distance from the house i told miss goodwin she was wanted and she came to the house and remained there till a quarter to seven when she went out again I went out at a quarter past seven and found her again sitting on the seat with the prisoner. I told her tea was ready and she said, I am coming directly. I left her, but she never returned alive. I had seen the prisoner before. His manner was not different on the 21st from what it had been at other times. And another testimony of Reuben Conway. I work for Mr. Bomer, who lives just opposite the hall. On Friday night, between 8 and 9 o'clock, as I was going along the turnpike road from the hall towards the Wigwell Lane end, I heard a moaning noise, which appeared to come from the direction of Mill Lane end. I ran forward and found Miss Goodwin guiding herself by the wall and coming towards the hall. Her face and the front of her dress were covered with blood. She asked me to take her home and said there was a gentleman down there had been murdering her. I put my arm around. I put my arm round her and carried her about 20 yards. She asked me whether I could see anyone, and on looking down the road, I saw the prisoner 60 or 80 yards below towards the lane end, 
and nearer the lane end than the place where the blood was afterwards found. He was crossing the road and then came towards me. When I first saw him, he was about 40 yards from the hunting gate. As he came up, I went towards him and asked him who had been murdering Miss Goodwin. He said he had stabbed her. I asked him to go and help me, and he took hold of her head and I her body, and we carried her towards Wigwell. He called her poor Bessie several times and said, you should not have proved false to me. Oh, that pisses me off. She said nothing then. We laid her down near a gate and prisoner asked me for something to put round her neck to stop the bleeding. I said I had nothing and he asked me to go for help. I asked him if he would stop with her and he said he would. I then went to Mr. Bowman's, Bomer's yard, pardon, for help, leaving the prisoner with Miss Goodwin. I was away about four or five minutes, and on coming back found the prisoner holding something round her neck. I asked if she was living, and he said she was. She said, take me home. We then carried her a short distance further, until Mr. Seeds and his brother came up. Mr. Seeds asked who had done it. The prisoner said, I have done it. We then carried her further and met James Conway, who also asked who had done it. The prisoner said, I know, and he knows. I am the man who did it, and I shall be hanged for it. Miss Goodwin then said she was dying. We carried her further and met Mr. Bomer, who also asked to know who had done it. The prisoner said, I have done it. There is no question at all about that. After going a little further, he said he was afraid she was dead and bent down and kissed her. She was dead. We met Captain Goodwin and Ann Poyser at the housekeeper, just within the hall gates. Captain Goodwin asked what we had amiss and the prisoner answered, It is your granddaughter, Betsy, murdered. Captain Goodwin wanted to know who had done it, the prisoner said. I have done it. And on the captain's asking who he, sa who he was said, My name is George Townley. The body was taken into the kitchen and put on the floor. Captain Goodwin then asked the prisoner who made him do it. He answered, She has deceived me and the woman that deceives me must die. He then went into the drawing room with Captain Goodwin. Now for the testimony of Charles Parnham. When I got to Wigwell on the Friday evening, the prisoner came towards me and said, I wish to give myself up for murdering the young lady. I cautioned him and asked if he was aware of the nature of the charge he was giving himself up for. He said, Yes, quite so, and we'll go with you quietly, only let me see her first. I then said to him, What have you done with the instrument or knife you committed the deed with? He took the knife now produced out of his pocket and gave it to me. It was wet with blood. I then took him into the kitchen. He looked at the body steadfastly, but did not speak. On the way to the lockup, he said, I am far happier now, I have done it, than I was before, and I trust she is. I hate him. I searched him and found two other knives, open knives, upon him. Next morning, I asked him if he knew anything about a shawl. He said, I saw one on the road and threw it over the wall. What an asshole. This was Miss Goodwin's shawl. I examined the road and found a small pool of blood at the corner of Wigwell Mill Lane. At the hunting gate, which is about 200 yards from the lane and lane end and nearer the hall, I found another large pool of blood. I did not notice any in between the two places. He also noted that there were 
pieces cut out of the gate from when he was so lovingly um, playing with the knife he was about to murder her with. Now let's talk about the testimony of Mary Townley, uh, George Townley's mother. And for me, it's giving enabler energy. So after George received the letter breaking off the engagement, this is what she said happened. Quote, that letter seemed to have turned his brain. He was in such an excited, suppressed state of feeling that I asked Mr. Aerosmith to sit up with him. The next morning I went to my son's room. He was at the door and appeared very excited, but externally calm. He had not been in bed. He took nothing but tea and brandy for breakfast, breakfast of champions here, and only very little for dinner. That evening, Sunday, 16th of August, he wrote a letter to Miss Goodwin. He took a long time to write it and was nervous and excited while doing so. He came down on Monday morning and lay on the sofa. He appeared very restless. His hands and feet were twitching nervously. I gave him some morphia. Yes, brandy and morphine and no food is a great combo. He remained on the sofa till dinner time and took no dinner. After dinner, he wrote another letter to Mrs. Goodwin. This letter um, we already talked about. He had a little difficulty in finding words now and then. He was so nervous that he spoiled several envelopes in directing the letter of Sunday and had to tear them up. On Tuesday morning, he took hardly any breakfast and appeared not to have a night's rest. He then went to Manchester to give a French lesson, and on coming back, he was in perspiration and said he hoped he was not going to have an illness. Now, why would you not feel well after not eating and only having morphine and alcohol? Strange. That afternoon, he went to Bolton to Mr. Aerosmith's. On Thursday, another letter came from Miss Goodwin and telegraphed to him to and I telegraphed to him to return home. On arriving, he showed me a letter he had received from Miss Goodwin at Bolton. The purpose of it was that if he wished to see her, he was to go to the Midland Hotel at Derby, where he would find a note from her, but she did not want to see him. There was a postscript, quote, after all, you had better come, end quote. And she mentioned the trains. We consulted on what was to be done at the station and fixed that he had better go to Derby. The letter I gave him for Miss Goodwin evidently distressed him. I could see he was dreadfully upset, but he always kept quiet. Shortly afterwards, he left for Derby. His manner was generally reserved, but excited. I noticed an excited manner. That was his natural manner during the whole course of his life. Or, sure it was. He was only excited on occasions. I noticed a change after the receipt of Miss Goodwin's letters. I should describe that change as a suppression of deep feeling. I believe an objection was made to my marriage with Mr. Townley on the ground of the insanity in my family. Now, why would she say that? Because the defense had nothing. So they were going to, like many other cases I've already talked to you about, claim insanity. So they start the insanity defense um, first by stating that one of his aunts had, quote, destroyed herself, end quote, and a first cousin had spent some time in a lunatic asylum. That's not a lot to go on, but okay, we'll keep listening. Um, so there is another testimony here from a Mr. Aerosmith um, that the mother mentioned. Washington Aerosmith. I am a cotton spinner at Bolton. On the 12th of August, I saw the prisoner before and after he received Miss Goodwin's letter. 
He seemed much depressed by it. He seemed more depressed after getting the second letter. I sat up with him on a Saturday night, the 15th. He was alternately depressed and excited and wept for about four hours in the course of the night, not continuously. I assisted him in writing the letter of Sunday. He supplied the substance of the letter and I the words. He seemed to have a difficulty in finding words. He was with me at Bolton from Tuesday till Saturday the 20th and appeared to be suffering very severely in mind. He received a letter from Miss Goodwin during that time, which seemed to make him more despondent. I did not see him again after he received the telegram of Mrs. Townley. His mind and manner underwent a marked change after he received the letters from Miss Goodwin. He appeared to be lost in thought and did not observe me sometimes when I spoke to him. His natural disposition was very kind, but very reserved. And upon cross-examination, he was subject to passion like anybody else. The letter from Ginlow Gilnow Mills, he wrote himself. I am not aware that he had any medical advice on the night. I sat up with him. He appeared to be very much distressed and kept walking. That made me think it not safe to leave him. So it really, to me, it feels like they're grasping at straws here for the insanity, but I'll let you make up your own mind there. Now, this testimony was very controversial at the time. Um, many were outraged that a rich boy could basically pay a doctor to say that he was insane so that he could avoid jail time. So let's hear the testimony of Dr. Forbes Winslow. I have seen the prisoner twice in the presence of Mr. Sims, the governor of the goal. He was not aware of my name or of the object of my visit. I talked to him largely on the subject of the crime. I was with him nearly two hours on the first occasion and three quarters of an hour on the second. I think that at this present moment, he is a man of deranged intellect. He was deranged on the 18th of November and I thought still more so last night when I saw him the second time. If I had any doubt as to his insanity on the 18th of November, I had none whatever last night. I averted to the conversation I had with him on the previous occasion with a view of satisfying my mind that I had left him with an accurate impression of what he had said. He repeated to me that he did not recognize he had committed any crime at all. Neither did he feel any degree of pain, regret, contrition, or remorse for what he had done. That doesn't mean he's insane, that means he's an asshole. I endeavored to impress on his mind on my first visit the serious nature of the crime he had committed. He repudiated the idea of its being a crime either against God or man. In a reply to some observations of mine, attempted to justify the act, alleging that he considered Miss Goodwin as his own property, that she had been illegally wrested from him by an act of violence, that he viewed her in the light of his wife who had committed an act of adultery, and that he had as perfect a right to deal with her life as he had with any other description of property as the money in his pocket, etc. I endeavored to prove to him the gross absurdity of his statement and the enormity of his offense, and he replied, nothing short of a miracle can alter my opinions. He remarked that he recognized the right of no man to sit in, ju in judgment upon him. He was a free agent, and as he did not bring himself into the world by any action of his own, he had perfect liberty to think and act as he pleased, irrespective of anyone else. Again, he's an asshole. I regard these expressions as the evidence of a diseased intellect. Nice. Last evening, he said that he had been for some weeks previously to the 21st of August under the influence of a conspiracy. There were six conspirators plotting against him with a view to destroy him, 
with a chief conspirator and their head. He became much excited and assumed a wild, maniacal aspect. I am satisfied the aspect was not simulated. Okay, so why are we just hearing about this now and why does it sound completely made up? And upon, upon cross-examination, I should class his case as one of general derangement. He does not appear to have a sane opinion on a moral point. I have no doubt he knows that these opinions of his are contrary to those generally entertained, and that if acted upon, they would subject him to punishment. I should think he would know that killing a person was contrary to law and wrong in that sense. I should think that from his saying he should be hanged, he knew he had done wrong. His moral sense was more vitiated than I ever saw that of any other human being. His opinions were pretty much those of atheists, but he was beyond atheism. Are we saying that atheists are crazy? He seemed incapable of reasoning correctly on any moral subject. He denied the existence of a God and a of a future world. He would suffer from his confinement, which would add to his excitement. It was more remarkable last evening than on the 18th of November and might not have existed on the 21st of August. He said it was a matter of perfect indifference whether he was dead or alive. And Dr. Gisborne, a surgeon, um, gave, a, gave similar evidence, they said, and agreed that his condition um, and that concluded the defense. Just wow. So after the judge heard all the evidence, he stated, if Townley knew that the act he was doing would probably cause death and that the doing it would subject him to legal punishment, there was criminal responsibility. The jury, after convening for all of five minutes, returned with the verdict of guilty of willful murder. Baron Martin stated, prisoner at the bar. After every possibility in your favor has been urged with an ability never excelled, you have been found guilty of willful murder. And in that verdict, I entirely concur. If the defense which had been set up in your behalf had prevailed, it would, in my opinion, have been attended with consequences dangerous to society. If it entered into the minds of men that they might take the life of any woman who was fickle, the results would be fearful. I have now only one duty to perform. With regard to that, I have no discretion, but I am under an absolute necessity of fulfilling it. I beg of you to take advantage of your opportunity to make your peace with God. I have no desire by any comment of mine to distress you or any other persons, but will, without saying more, pronounce the sentence imposed by the law. His Lordship then, with much emotion, passed sentence of death upon the prisoner. The defense argued the sentencing and ultimately his sentencing was commuted to life in prison rather than execution. And he was sent to Pentonville prison. That is a lot of P words here, but that is not the end of our story. So one thing to note is that on Friday, um, February 10th, 1865, um, Captain Goodwin died at the age of 86 years old. Um, so that was the grandfather of Bessie. Um, and then two days later, on a Sunday, February 12th, 1865, uh, George Victor Townley threw himself over the balustrade um, after church. And it was 24 feet high. He landed face first. He had a cut over his right temple and forehead. 
that extended over his right eye, and he ultimately died of a skull fracture at 8.20. And one prisoner did witness this, and he stated, I recollect that on Sunday, I was sitting on the right of the deceased at chapel. He was very quiet till the last hymn was sung. He then got up, opened his prayer book, and sang out the two last verses very loudly. I never heard him do that before. He said to me, 319th hymn. That was the right hymn. He afterwards shut his prayer book, repeated the service, and then going before me, walked out. He made a full stop at the bottom step in the chapel, dropped his prayer book, got hold of the rails round the gallery, put his feet on the steps, and sprang right over, head over heels. And as he fell, he exclaimed, Oh, he fell flat on his face below. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to leave a review. If not, um, don't leave a review, but still have a great night. Um, And I do have the photograph here of our poor Miss Bessie Goodwin. She is quite beautiful. You can see her photograph posted on the Instagram page at The Axe Murder Diaries. If you have any requests, questions, comments, or any ghost stories you'd like to share, please submit them to theaxemurderdiaries at gmail.com. Otherwise, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Have a good night and stay spooky.